Welcome to Devalued with Mike and Caroline, the place where we talk about art and money and how creative people are navigating the ever-changing landscape of trying to make a living for their work. We're going to be interviewing all types of creative people, and we'll be talking about all types of issues that creative people face. We hope you'll get something out of it. We're excited to welcome you to Devalued. Hey, Caroline. Hey, Mike. Who are we talking to today? We are talking to Colin McIntyre, who is the man behind Mull Historical Society, a iconic Scottish indie pop group. And uh, he also is a novelist. He's a novelist, a man of words, and his new album, In My Mind There's a Room, also includes the words of many other famous novelists. I really enjoyed this conversation. Uh, we talk about community. Uh, we talk about the music industry. And he has a great real-life example of someone in his life embodying both artistic pursuits and uh, a mind for money. That's true. And he also has a great sense of how to stay original and true to yourself. And I thought this was a really inspiring conversation. Me too. Cool. Check it out. We always start by asking, uh, do you think art and money go together? Mm, yes. Yeah, I think so, yeah. I mean, I remember when I first, um, my music was starting to get noticed or it was looking like, you know, um, there might be a record deal or, you know, kind of more of an infrastructure around what I do. Um, and I, I was always quite aware it was the music business and and actually even before that you know when I first had when I was you know calling record companies and keeping very organized files of who had spoken to and well I'm not that organized but um, <laughs> I was supposed I was quite focused in trying to um, get my music going and even then I was always aware that it was that the biz- it was music business the music business so I think for me, I do think, you know, uh, the arts kind of goes together with money, but I suppose I don't really feel that that's not my drive. Um, you know, I think my drive is ideas and originality, what makes you original. And um, hopefully from that comes, you know, community exposure, connection and um, some impact on your bank balance, I suppose. <laughs> There's something really interesting about your songs, too, because a lot of them do deal with, I guess, the economic pressure on people. I'm thinking about like songs like The Supermarket Strikes Back or Live Like the Automatics, songs that deal with like this kind of accelerationist um, impulse in society that kind of leaves people feeling alienated. And I wonder if you're aware of that kind of theme in your writing. Um, well, now you point it out. Yeah. <laughs> I, think, yeah. I mean, um, I suppose, yes. You know, I think I come from, um, in case folks don't know, I come from um, the Isle of Mull and the Hebrides. So it's just, that's a kind of a group of islands on the west coast of Scotland in the Atlantic. So, um, uh, So for me... You know, it's about two and a half thousand people on the island. And um, so 
community, second time I've mentioned the word community, so it must mean something to me. But yeah, coming from a small community with many more sheep than human beings on the <laughs> island, um, I, I was, I was, I've always, for me, writing about where I come from, whether it be in music or I also write books as well. Um, the, it does have a factor. I think where you come from is a really important part of being an artist. And it took me a little while to, to, to figure that out. I was in Glasgow and working in jobs. I was a student in Glasgow. And, but really for me, everything I was doing was really a device or a way, a vehicle to, to be creative instead of, well, I was doing my uni work, but I was also writing essays about what I was studying. I, I was writing songs about what I was studying. And so for me, community, um, and how it impacts on you, how it travels with you is really important. So when you come from a small place, um, I'm wondering if that matters to you even more. And so back to your question and how people are affected by issues and whether they be socio-economical, economic or um, other ways, you know, in terms of remoteness or how geography affects people. I think that just ma that just matters to me, and it, but it took me a while to kind of get there. You know, I think a lot of my songwriting, like a lot of people, was probably quite influenced by other artists at first, and then gradually you find your own voice, your own sound. And again, it's back to what makes you original. I think it's back to what you feel you can authentically talk about. And for me, coming from a small place, definitely, I was always interested in how bigness affects smallness and how smallness affects bigness. And um, my first single, you mentioned The Supermarket Strikes Back, was a song on my second album, and it was a response actually to my first ever single, um, which is called Barcode Bypass. And it was about a, a shopkeeper, small shopkeeper trying to tell his wife that he was going to stop taking the heart medications. He's going to walk off with his dogs. So I, I kind of distilled that to barcode, meaning commerce, bypass his medical condition. Um, and I took verse two lyrics off the pack of a painkiller medication <laughs> pack. So, um, so that story very much came from the community I come from. And even when they sort of, you know, media or press, music press started to get interested in what I was doing. I remember going up, taking time out London up to the Isle of Mull and the journalists are standing at the end of the old pier and looking, because God, there's a corner shop and there's the supermarket. And, and this song was really about a supermarket owner, sorry, a supermarket affecting this kind of small town shop owner and that impact that was having on his business. Um, and um, I was really pleased the journalists kind of picked up on that. There isn't a supermarket where I come from. I mean, I don't know where he, what he was really saying. We had quite a big night the night before, so maybe <laughs> he was visualising one. But um, um, but the small shop where I come from does feel a bit like a supermarket to, uh, to us. And um, so, yeah, the song you referenced, The Supermarket Strikes Back, was a kind of, was basically the supermarket owner responding to the small shopkeeper um, for, you know, putting him out of business. And um, interestingly, when that first single came out, Barcode Bypass, 
there was a problem with the barcode on the CDs as it was mostly then. Um, so it actually my, it became a reality really that the, 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 the singles weren't getting tagged properly for some reason. There was some <laughs> error with the barcode. So, um, so it literally became the case. But um, so, yeah, I suppose it wasn't your normal first single. The record label um, strikes back. Yeah, well, yeah, exactly. Yeah, the public. Um, and, yeah, I haven't written one from the perspective of the record label owner yet, I don't think. Um, but, the, um, but it was seven and a half minutes long, and I suppose it wasn't Boy Meets Girl song, um, or Boy Meets Anybody, or Girl Meets Anybody. But it was, um, yeah, it, I remember being on the that seafront that I talked about that I grew up on and hearing it getting played on BBC Radio 1 about 3 o'clock in the afternoon thinking wow and they played all seven and a half minutes of it so um, I remember thinking all right something's gonna change now <laughs> but maybe not in, maybe not in time to shave that to save that um, shopkeeper but I think what you say there Mike is quite on the money if I could say that um, I think probably I have it does matter to me, social conditions and how they affect people. We love that. <laughs> we think about that often, and I'm from a small town too, maybe not that small. Um, but right. I I find that uh, community is really the whole reason I was drawn to music in the first place. Yeah, my, my first album was called Loss, um, and um, it, it actually only recently because it reached a certain birthday, 21st anniversary, and it was, it's recently been reissued, and I've done quite a lot of shows here in the UK playing the album in its entirety and whatnot. But only recently I realised that it only ever had one alternative title, which was Community, um, and I'd actually forgotten that. So, um, But Loss became more of a theme. Um, but yeah. Hopefully it's quite an uplifting album as well. It's not necessarily all about um, the downside of grief, but there is a lot of um, just writing about characters and real people. And, and that for me, whether it be in TV or film or books or plays, that's always really influenced me as much as anything else, you know, in my music. Those trying to sort of bring characters to life to try and highlight the way we live. In a way, that album is the reason why we're talking, because when I was in high school, me and my friend Lloyd were walking through a record store, and we were really stoned out of our minds. <laughs> he came across uh, the album Lost with the, the, with the dog with the wig on it, and he was like, what the fuck is this? And we bought it. We had no idea who you were, and we listened to it in the car on the way home, Like, and it was so amazing. And so ever since then, I've been... A huge well, fan. So shout out to Lloyd. <laughs> yeah, thank you, Lloyd. Um, I, um, I really appreciate both your kind of your appreciation of dog and headdress. <laughs> yeah, you must have thought Mull Historical Society front cover dog in a wig. Um, yeah, you must have. It must have taken a wee bit of explaining or, yeah, or listening. Um, for sure. I do remember. I remember one time being in a bar. Uh, in New York and um, it was quite nice music getting played and chatting to the barman and um, 
this doesn't happen to me very often. It doesn't really happen to me back in Isle of Mull that often. But anyway, I was um, chatting to him and he, um, I mentioned we were talking music and I mentioned he asked what I did and I got talking and I told him what I did. And he, um, when he, he actually knew my album, my first album, and he said, um, oh, the dog in the wig, the dog in the wig. And I was like, <laughs> yeah. So, um, so um, it's, uh, I'll, I'll take the visual recognition as much as the audio. Some musicians I find shy away from that. I do graphic design a little bit too. And uh, so I work with a lot of musicians to help them, you know, come up with whether it's posters or single art or cover art or whatever it may be. And a lot of artists shy away from that. They're like, oh, I don't do that. I don't do visual stuff. But I'm like, it's another way to express yourself. You know, it's another way to uh, try to connect with people and catch some attention yeah. I, I yeah i think i suppose it goes back a little bit to what you said at the beginning you know i felt that i felt um because i've always been despite the kind of pseudonym name i've always been solo i've always been really on my own in terms of the writing the creativity i maybe tour with bigger bands and well maybe we'll get on to it but i'm collaborating a lot more now I'm becoming less of a control freak but um but the point I was going to make is back to that thing of music business. I remember feeling that um, for better or worse, when I kind of signed first deal and on a tour bus and I realized I was, I was almost the head of a small business. Now my management then were, you know, very experienced and I also took a lot of advice from people around me, but you know, I'd been trying for a while to get things going. So I suppose I um, I saw my role in everything I did, you know, whether that be the kind of business side of it going on around me as much as I could, you know, try and learn quickly about a lot of those things. But also the creativity thing, as you said, um, Caroline, you know, I I wanted to be a part of everything, you know. So I, I remember people at the beginning asking me, you know, because I produced my first three albums as well, and I suppose I played quite a lot of stuff on it. And wrote the songs and then I was interested in the visual and people would say you know do you why do you do all these things and I'm not I don't mean this to blow more in trumpet because lots of people do it but I just felt like well because I can and because I I want to and and you always learn you know I look back at some things visually and think um actually my third album this is hope which was recorded in America and written somewhat in New Orleans and traveling around a bit but the original cover, um, completely my fault. I didn't. I just didn't really like, and I didn't really like over the years. But, and this is not a com this is not a commerce plug on your money show. But um, <laughs> it's recently been reissued as well as my first two albums on vinyl, and it didn't come out in vinyl. This is hope for some reason at the time. So it was really nice to have another go actually at the artwork and sort of simplify it and reflect maybe more accurately, this album that had been sort of made in the UK, but also in America and that space in between the Atlantic, you know, all those things kind of featured. And um, so, yeah, it's quite nice when you get another crack at it as well. But I agree. I think it's I, it's nice to be a part of, I mean, I think quite visually in my songwriting, I think. So I suppose maybe that's just the way I am. And the cool thing about that too is that... Um... You know, when you're, I guess your first three records were coming out, the vinyl resurgence hadn't quite yet happened. And so, I guess now, 
what is it like to have all of your albums reissued on vinyl? I, I would imagine that would probably be the way that you first heard your favorite records would be on vinyl, right? Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, I was never really a massive music collector. Um, that's something that is sort of happening more now, really. I'm, I'm much more interested in vinyl, and my wife's got an amazing sort of vinyl collection, and I, I think I'll, I'll never catch up with hers, but... Um, again, maybe it goes back to where I came from. You know, I didn't grow up. I grew up on an island. There was no record shop, no cinema, no... You know, there was one shop, not the corner shop I mentioned earlier, but um, where you could buy a bar of soap, get some plumbing equipment and maybe a record if you were lucky, you know, in the corner somewhere. So I think maybe it's just you're a product, again, of where you come from. So, um, but yeah, it's been really nice to have more of an appreciation of vinyl now and um, being able to enjoy that. And I love, so actually my first three records I won in the, on the, in the island, on the island in the local hall where I then started performing. Um, but it was a local tombola kind of fair and I won a record player and three records. And the record player was like a suitcase I'm not that old. I think it, I think it, <laughs> it predated me by about 20 years, I think. I loved it. I loved it from the seafront all the way up to my house where I had still got it here. My four-track doesn't, I don't use it anymore, but my, you know, my little four-track recording setup and I was trying to learn all this stuff. And it was, it was um, Sound of Silence, Queen's Greatest Hits and with the Beatles. And um, it's pretty good. And this record. Yeah, and this old record player, you know, so I used to kind of fall asleep at night listening to this and then try to learn all the songs. So, um, yeah, despite despite kind of that happening to me when I was a teenager, really, I haven't had a load of records in the intervening years as much as maybe I should have, given I'm a musician. But you do spend a lot of time in your own head making your own stuff as well, you know. For sure. You mentioned that you got some advice when you were kind of starting out. Um, is there anything you can share that you really remember kind of guiding your path? Um, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, I had a lot of good people around me. And, um, yeah, I think that idea of, I, I, I can remember, I remember maybe from an unlikely source, but maybe not, you know, um, my first ever tour and we got picked up in Glasgow and I was supporting Elbow for a month. My second ever tour, I supported The Strokes for about six weeks. So I had quite a good few, you know, early, early, um, even though I had a tour bus and The Strokes had a blue transit van, but within about <laughs> three nights, I had a tour bus as well. But maybe we'll come to that. Um, but, um, we were on the same label, um, Rough Trade in the UK. Um, but I remember on that first tour going off and thinking, all right, this is real. This is this is a tour bus. Somehow those three records I won and that four track in my bedroom is equating to this, you know, to being on the road, to grown men around me who are my crew and a band. And, you know, um, and I remember sitting up front, sort of just thought, well, I'll just sit up front and kind of get myself comfortable. And I had a little bit of a sort of somewhere on the border between because it started in London or Brighton, the tours so are right down to the south coast of the UK from starting out in Glasgow and sitting with a bus driver who was a Liverpudlian who'd driven many big artists, you know, and 
And I thought, I'll just start with him. You know, we just started looking at the road, going, chatting. And he, I remember him saying that thing to me. Um, he called me boss. And I, <laughs> and I was like, <laughs> okay. Um, <laughs> oh, uh, and then I sort of felt like, well, you're the boss, really. You know this more than me, you know. And um, But I remember him saying to me, no, you are, you know, what I suppose it ties in a bit of what I've already said. He said, you know, you your music's the reason this these wheels are on the road and um you know look after it and i think he'd seen you know he was probably 60 years old and he'd seen all kinds of um experiences and good and bad you know on of of musicians and artists and so i think i remember him saying to really look after music and um to look after where the money's been spent and I had this whole conversation. We were halfway by Manchester and then Birmingham and I was just sitting up front and um, it always struck with me actually um, that, but you know, there was also management and lawyers and other people probably saying things like that to me. But um, I think the idea of just um, trying not to be wasteful, you know, and obviously budgets over the years have changed and, but to kind of always think, well, Ultimately, it's what you make creatively that matters, you know, and to try and achieve it the way you hear it in your head. But um, to be aware that any money you're being given from another source usually has to be paid back, you know. Um, other advice, I remember listening to, a, um, again, you know, I remember listening to an author in Glasgow called Alistair Gray, who some of your listeners may not know of, but Alistair Gray's probably written, you know, one of the biggest books of, of the last sort of, 50 years or more in, in Scotland anyway, and it's called Lanark. And um, he and Everyn Welsh, Trainspotting, are usually sort of one or two of the top books in that those kind of polls. Um, and I remember going to see Alistair Gray talk, and I actually name-checked Alistair Gray and This Is Hope, now I think about it. And This Is The Hebrides, the song and This Is Hope, the album, which is my third album. I, I, I referenced Alistair Gray and uh, Philip Roth. I think I just kind of read out some of the names of a book, a pile of books in front of me and somehow made them rhyme. But anyway, I remember going to see Alistair Gray talk and somebody, somebody had asked him in the audience about writing and I was really trying to learn the craft of writing then, you know, like novel writing and short story writing, as, a, as you always are, but... And he said, um, somebody asked him for advice on a particular thing. And he said, well, I think they were thinking they were going to get some stylistic advice from him or something, you know, to do with writing. And he said, well, get a, get yourself a, a flat if you can. Some, You know, if you can afford that, maybe it's a job you have, but try if you can get yourself a property and if you can have a second room and if you can rent out that second room to someone else, then that's another income. And you may have other income coming from your creative pursuits, but that will be, that will ensure that you can continue doing what you're doing and hopefully as much as possible on your own terms. Um, and I always remember that really stuck with me. And I think there was a lot of people left that talk thinking, I, I wanted to hear about, uh, I mean, he did talk about his writing as well, but that actually, I remember leaving thinking, oh yeah, that that's that's good advice. He just gave very practical advice um, to new writers, you know. So um, 
Yeah, there's probably been lots of other advice I've been given over the years, but I think for me, it's just sort of being aware that, um, uh, I mean, I've never been signed as a band, you know, and that's a kind of type, slightly different situation, you know, so I, that that presents positives and potential other um, difficulties, you know, maybe in terms of finance or, um, but yeah, I think just... Um, just to be aware that uh, to try and build relationships because, you know, it's always tempting to take big advances, whether it's as an, for me as a writer, as a novelist or as a musician, but maybe try and if you can do a bit, if you can take less of the advance, then I think they might see you as a bit more of a long, long-term prospect and maybe try and negotiate better royalties than necessarily a significant advance. And try and get that spare room. <laughs> <laughs> that is good advice. I think uh, staying afloat financially is probably the biggest hardship that a lot of artists face right now. Yeah, it's a journey creatively, you know. And I, I think I'm, I, I feel fortunate. I've always tried to keep my ideas on on, on the go, you know, and and to keep, um, you know, I've had many different record deals and different ways of being financed. I've set up my own label that came from a kind of venture capitalist money at one point. I've, um, so, you know, just to try and get as much stuff out there. But for me, I suppose it comes back to that thing of creatively, I never want to stay in one place. I'm really, I am, you know, the people that inspire me are people who take risks. And I always say this to you know, maybe students or young people I might be working with. I always say these two things. What makes you original? And, you know, I think of creativity as almost being a bit on a, on a cliff edge and being willing to jump, being willing to be real, to, to reveal. And I also think, um, so I think that's important creatively, but uh, I think for me, the artists that I also admire are ones that don't stand still and that try different things. You know, Bowie, David Byrne, um, oh, there's so many, you know, but, um, that I just, I, I respect because they keep evolving, you know, uh, PJ Harvey or, or, or and, and I think I'm particularly interested in trying other things, you know, like for me, writing comes from the same place as songwriting and it's another potential income. You know, it's another potential way of getting your ideas out there and keeping what you want to do going. It's really interesting that you, um, your new record, in my mind there's a room, is a collaboration with other writers and you've been so focused on being a writer yourself. So how did you let yeah. the words go to other people? <laughs> you outsourced the, the, <laughs> the thing that you yeah. love to do. Yeah, it's interesting that you word it that way. How did I let that happen? Uh, um, <laughs> <laughs> It's funny, I was thinking, when I first discussed it with a few people, and um, I remember talking to Bernard Butler. Do you know Bernard Butler? Who found, yeah, who was Swade. The Swade yeah. And, um, and lots of great things, McCallum and Butler, and um, he's done an album with Jesse Buckley, the artist, the actress. Um, but Bernard produced my last album, Wake Lines, and um, that was great. You know, you learn from other people again, and also seeing how other people maintain their careers and diversify and Bernard's, you know, produced a lot of people as well as being a songwriter. And, um, 
Anyway, I remember talking to him about it and him saying, well, I think a lot of people come to you for your words. I was like, okay. <laughs> and I, I mean, that was nice of him to say. Um, and, but maybe I've been using a lot of words in other places. You know, I have been writing a lot. I've got, I write kind of kids' books and um, fiction and nonfiction. And, and like us all through lockdown, you know, we had to kind of keep ourselves busy. And I found myself working loads of different things that, that are now sort of hopefully coming to fruition. You know, they're kind of starting to find where they should land. And because um, creativity often feels like solving a puzzle, whether it's a novel or a song or whatever. Um, and so the idea of reaching out was this this thing of collaboration and realizing that um, it would be, I've always wanted to bring my kind of worlds of music and um, writing together. And I've had that idea for a while. And then the most unlikely thing happened uh, last year where my my grandparents' flat, their apartment in Onmal, in Tobermory, which is the main sort of town on Mall that I come from, um, was turned into a recording studio. And they lived there for 45 years. My grandfather was the bank manager. So the flat is above the bank on Tob Murray Main Street, if anyone wants to Google this, look at a kind of <laughs> picturesque, colourful Tob Murray seafront. Um, and um, the bank flat was quite an unusual building. It's got a turret window. I mean, to me, it was just where my grandparents lived when I grew up. But um, I suppose it's quite an unusual space. And I hadn't been in it in 20-odd years because my grandfather passed away um, in the late 80s and then my grandmother left the flat in the sort of uh, early 2000s. So, um, I mean, what's the chances of being a musician in your grandparents' flat turning into a recording studio? And it's a good friend of mine, Gordon McLean, who ran the art centre on the island, which is actually my old primary school, and he ran that for 25 years, and he was looking for a studio to work to sort of work in. And he could have knocked me off the tube in London when I saw the email from him that he'd found this Seaview interesting building with a turret. It's like, what? I mean, it was just as bizarre. So, um, he said, come up and do a few tunes. You have to be the first to record in it. And my great-grandmother lived in the flat as well. And, you know, she remembered Queen Victoria and she was about 20 when the Titanic went down. And so, you know, it was a lot of history there. She remembered Butch Cassidy and, you know, these sort of stories of the Wild West. And I stress, I'm not that old, you know. But, um, <laughs> but um so it was, you know, there's a lot in those rooms for me, and I, I spent my childhood there. And what I haven't mentioned is my grandfather was the bank manager, but he was also the poet, and he's still in print now. And he's called Angus McIntyre. So, you know, he was not—he was quite unusual for a bank manager. He was a complete, incredible one-off character, and we'd go off to speaking tours. He chaired all the Cayleys. He, you know, the part their kind of Scottish dancing parties, and so this bank flat was not a usual bank flat bank. You know, building. It was, uh, he wrote his poetry there. You were never quite sure what he was doing poetry or banking and um, living above the shop. You know, he would, he um, he was always there and people would leave with an overdraft that they didn't even ask for and maybe a poem stuffed in their pocket and usually several whiskeys inside them. And, um, you know, you had film stars like Anthony Hopkins and Robert Wagner who had made films on Mull. Mull's been used quite a lot for things like that, who would come and visit this quite eccentric kind of. Poet, 
bank manager, you know. So it was quite. So it wasn't just any old room to me. And I spent a lot of. He, he's still my biggest sort of inspiration as a storyteller. So this combination of him being a poet, his old flat becoming a recording studio. So I thought, okay, you know, you have these little light bulb moments where you think this is the time to try that ambition of bringing those two worlds together. And um, I had an old song called "In My Mind There's a Room," and that song should never be heard. Um, but uh, it was like early days of, you know, before I found my historical kind of identity. But, um, you know, I'd written hundreds of songs as a teenager and recorded them. And so it was one of those. But I liked the title and it just kind of, I thought, oh, that fits. That fit. That's what that's for. So I reached out to um, a load of authors and asked them if they would give me maybe 30 lines, original words on a significant room to them that I was then going to go and record in a significant room to me. And I had no idea. I wrote an email explaining this story I've just told you. And yeah, I got a load of responses from, you know, a load, a range of authors, like Ian Rankin, who's one of the sort of big UK crime writers, Paul McDermott, who's a crime writer, um, Jason Mott, who won the US National Book Award in 2021 for Hell of a Book. So he's a kind of New York Times bestseller. Um, Sebastian Barry, who's won the Booker Prize, the big book prize in Britain. Um, and Nick Hornby, who's a writer who did the Brooklyn film screenplay, but also did Fever Pitch and About a Boy. And of course, the, the film set in the record shop, um, High oh, Fidelity. Yeah. Yep, great movie. That's, that's, that's Nick's book. Yep. A lot of his books are um, so it's been wonderful. So suddenly I was in this bank flat back home recording, you know, these stories taking me to South Carolina, North Carolina, Jason Mott, taking me to New York. One of the one of the one of the songs is called Red Flame Diner by an author, Stephen Kelman, who's an English author, but um that diner in New York is significant to him and his wife. Um so people just wrote about a room that was significant to them, and and, and yeah, I, I I've loved I've loved sort of taking their stories and just um, trying to form them into songs. And then, really, I was just curious how Elton John works with Bernie Taupin. You know, I thought, <laughs> how does he do that? You sit, you know, you get somebody's word, you sit them on the piano, and where do you go? And I'd never done that before. I've written hundreds of songs, and I'd never done that. So, so. It's been a it's it's felt really quite effortless, but it's been a real pri- privilege to kind of have my hand on their door, so to speak, you know. And um, I'm really pleased with the album. It's been really it comes out in July, and um, yeah, it it doesn't really feel like other people's stories, you know. That was the weird thing. Like my friend who took on the studio, who engineered and recorded the album, you know, he was he said that to me. It's almost like it feels like. Um, because I'm really curious about where all these places are, the Red Flame Diner and, and the different titles that people have given us, you know. But he said, actually, they feel like they've somehow just kind of travelled through yeah. me and rooms. And so, yeah, I was singing in my grandparents' bedroom um, <laughs> where they used to be. And actually, the last time I walked into the, that, that space, because it's been, re- it's been rented out since then and I hadn't been in it, was when my f- third single... Of Lost came out, Animal Cannabis. Because I always remember we had a party as a family to leave the flat. And I 
it, I just got my chart position for my third single and it got to number 41. So, you know, the UK's top 40 is the big thing. Mm. So just out, but the next one went in. But anyway, so it was, I always remembered, it was quite significant to me when I was last in that room. Um, so yeah, I hope people enjoy it. I mean, it's just been real fun to make and it's actually been fun to produce it myself to get my hands on the tools again and sort of make it sound uh, the way I, I hear it. Well, the community of the Mall Historical Society keeps growing and now we're honorary members, I suppose. <laughs> and then everybody oh, who's well, listening. You are. I mean, this is this doesn't work on your podcast, but I do have uh, membership cards here. For <laughs> oh, that's so <laughs> great. So, so there are, uh, I remember having about a million of these made at the very beginning and I've, st <laughs> I've still got them. You know, I'll probably never get enough members. <laughs> um, but I really, you know, it's, it's very nice to, to be chatting with you and to um, just to have your music appreciated and for your music, you know, to travel really. Well, thank you so much for coming on, Colin. This has been so awesome. For yes. Us. Thank you, guys. I feel like I've done all the talking, but maybe that was the point. That's that the was. point. <laughs> <laughs> um, really, really pleasure talking to you guys. Yeah, Thank same. You. Thank you so much. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to Devalued. For more information about our podcast, please visit devalued.show.